Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Before we pop our corks, can I ask you a huge favour? If you don't already follow us, would you hit the follow button and give us a follow? You see the three little dots at the top right hand of your screen? Just tap that, hit the follow show tab. It's the first on the drop down menu. And ta-da, that means two things. One, you're never going to miss an episode. And two, it really does help us to bring you the very best guests there are out there. Speaking of which, on with the show. Welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is an actor, a writer and former semi-professional footballer who's grown up before our eyes. Born to accountant parents in Oldham in 1980, his big break came aged just 18 when he was cast as Anthony Royal in The Royal Family. The success of the show gave him the confidence to abandon his medical studies to become a doctor and pursue acting, moving from one hit show to another with his role as Johnny in Two Pints of Lager and a Packet of Crisps. Then followed parts on Doctor Who, Inside Number 9, several critically acclaimed films, as well as work on the stage in the West End and an Olivier Award nomination. In fact, it was whilst he was appearing on stage at the National in the highly praised Ugly Lies the Bones that he met his soon-to-be wife, 
Lindsay Ferrantino, an American playwright. For the last four years, he spent many, many, many months of the year on location in Guadeloupe, a French-speaking collection of islands in the heart of the Caribbean, playing Detective Inspector Neville Parker in the BBC's Death in Paradise, which still pulls in over 8 million viewers as an average, despite launching over a decade ago. Today, however, he's not in Guadeloupe, he's right here with me in London, rainy London, Ralph Little. Good to see you. That's the, possibly the best intro I've ever had. For I was like, yes, yeah, that's all right actually. When you when you write, write it down and say it out loud, I was like, yeah, that felt that felt great. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. But it's <laughs> but it's all true unless you tell me otherwise. Yeah, imagine if it was just all a lie. <laughs> but I think sometimes it's really nice to hear your life snapshotted back at you yeah. because we look at all the things that we didn't do or didn't work out. I and think that's a very genuinely very good point. Like I was listening to that. I was genuinely had a moment listening to that going, huh. It's been pretty good, actually. Yeah. But you know, the nature of the nature of what we both do, it's 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 very easy to be like, oh, that was a missed opportunity, and I wish I'd done better there, and all that yeah. kind of thing. So I'm sure it's the same in so many walks of life. But yeah, thanks for that. You're very very <laughs> welcome, and I mean, it's so nice to see you, and and under slightly more glamorous surroundings. Yeah, well, than the last time we spoke when you were yeah. in a camper van. I was in a camper van in the car park of my local pub with you. Yeah. Explain. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, we, we interviewed you for our podcast, me and Will Meller, and um, we were, uh, yeah, we, we, well, we wanted to come to you to make it easy, so... Um, Which was so generous of you, because so you'd literally <laughs> driven that camper... It's a motorhome, wasn't it? Was it was a motorhome, darling. It's a motorhome. It? You'd driven it from one side of London to the other. That's right, yeah. And we got there, and I thought it was great, our little camper van I interview. Loved it. Loved it, was, it. It was intimate. It was great. It was where there was, again, lots of wine. Yes. Well, I, uh, for people watching and listening to this, I want to be clear about something. This is called White Wine Question Time. Look... I love you dearly. We've known each other a long time. But the main reason I said yes to this was because I thought I was going to get three free <laughs> glasses of wine, right? Face. And I arrived here and there's a bottle in the middle of the table there and you tried to fob me off with elderflower water. I, I didn't like, know if you were doing dry jam. I was like, there better be some white wine in there by the time we start. This was going on And there. here it is. And here it is. Cheers, <laughs> cheers to you. Happy cheers. New Year. Oh, go on, let's lean. There we go. Happy there New Year. So not only did you take your motorhome around London to interview guests last year, you and Will also took the Two Pints podcast yeah. out on the road. That's a yeah. bit of a rock star moment, isn't it? Yeah, it was. It, we honestly didn't know if anyone was gonna uh, if anyone was gonna come. It, it, we didn't know whether it was to do big venues, small venues, like oh, just you know, fifty seaters or whatever. And we sort of took a chance, promoter took a chance and filled these pretty big theatre, you know, booked these pretty big theatres. And then we couldn't believe it. We put tickets on sale and it sold out like really quickly. You did, didn't you? And, um, it's heart stopping, isn't it? When it's your name above the door. Well, and especially... And you think, will they come? Especially because up to about five days before we started, we had no idea what we were going to do. <laughs> we were like, <laughs> I guess we should think of some... So we just went, yeah, we'll see. We'll see if any... We kind of went, we'll see if anyone's interested. And then we'll like come up with a show. But I was away, I was out of the country and Will was really busy. So we literally went, right, we've got five days to figure it out. But, you know, Will's so funny and spontaneous that all we needed luckily was sort of a, kind of a vague structure of, of, of what the podcast was and, um, you know, played games with the audience and whatever. And it was, it was a lot of fun. People loved it. It got quite rowdy. Well, the pod is doing very, very well. Continued success to both of you. As is... Uh, Death in Paradise. I can't believe it's 10 years. You are the fourth detective yeah. to wash up on its shores. Yeah. But the longest serving. Well, I, you know, I mean, I, I didn't want to mention that, but it's very nice of you to bring it up. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the show is an enormous success, actually. And, and um, funnily enough, I had a taste of it 
very early on because I was in I was a guest in the second series. I Were you? Yeah, I was. Um, I was. A, I was a red herring. Neither. I actually think if I'd have been either the murderer or the victim, they probably would have never Ooh. looked at you. asking me back. But luckily, I was. It was like a red herring. But yeah, I was in series two with with Ben Miller and. Um, you know, it was... So who was the first detective? Ben Miller. And then it was Chris Marshall, then Ardell O'Hanlon, then me. Wow. Um, and I did it back then, and you could tell there was sort of a vibe to it that, like, it was already series two. They knew that the first series had been a success because you never quite know. For it to be... This will be coming out on in this January, will be series, series 12, which is astonishing, really. There's very few things that kind of last that long, and especially last that long and, and, and managed to keep... Not just popularity, but I genuinely believe quality. Um, I think this series might end up being the best one, certainly the best one yet that I've done. So, yeah, it's a huge achievement. I just feel very lucky to be a part of it. Damn right you do. I mean, <laughs> look at where it's filmed for a start. Well, yeah, I just feel lucky to be a part of it because I get to <laughs> swan around the Caribbean for a while, to be <laughs> honest. Yeah. Quite, quite a while, like six months of the year. Yeah, it, yeah, it's weird. As I was leaving this, this time, it occurred to me, I sort of really sort of landed for me that... Uh, you know, sometimes people ask, they say, oh, my other half is American, so, you know, do I live more in America, live in London or whatever? And I was like, actually, you could re reasonably say that for the last three years, more than anywhere, my home has been Guadeloupe. I've lived there longer, m way more than anywhere else in the last three and a half years, which is mad to think that, I, if you'd have said to, you know, 15-year-old me that one day I'd, I'd live in the Caribbean for the most of part of three years, I would have laughed in your face, but I'd have taken it. <laughs> well, do you know what? That's almost as if you've read my questions because I'm oh. going to dive in now. What I've done today, because I thought, gosh, 10 years of death in paradise, but more importantly, you are now over 25 years in on your career. That is remarkable, Ralph. Yeah, I guess. And you just alluded to the fact that if you'd have told the younger you that you'd yeah. have been spending most of your life working out of the Caribbean year in, year out, yeah. In, your, yeah, in your early 40s, you'd have gone, what? So let's dive into my first question because I wanted to use these three questions as an opportunity to, to look back over your incredible life. Question number one. You've just returned to our screens as D.I. Neville Parker in Death in Paradise. And if I told you as a younger man that you would end up one day playing the lead in one of the BBC's biggest dramas, which is set on a Caribbean island, you'd probably have thought I was insane. So can we talk about the other places you found yourself as a result of your work, be it geographical or metaphorical, that you would never have believed could be happening to you? It's a good question. I, I, yeah, there will be. There are a few. When the royal family came out, it was, it was such a phenomenon to, and and it's funny because it would it would seem like it was immediately life changing, but it wasn't that to me at least. And that's that's an interesting thing about uh, overnight successes. The royal family was about as much of an overnight success as you could imagine a TV show to be, and yet it still took about a year, if not more, for my career to really sort of follow up from that. You know, it's not like. Suddenly people were interested in me and the industry and casting directors were interested in me, which is why I was felt like I could take the chance on medical school. But it wasn't suddenly like I had 10 offers on the table and it was a case of just pick one. Even getting recognised, not that I was ever an ambition, but even getting recognised, sort of probably in that first year, despite it being a phenomenon, I probably only got recognised about three, four times no in way. the entire year. So 1998. The internet is just about a thing. Well, there is that, yeah. There's no social media. Yeah, that is true. So there you are. You're, you're, it's 1998. You're in probably one of the biggest comedy shows on yeah. telly at the time, but only recognised for yeah, a handful a of times one. across I mean, the I year. It was never something that was important to me to go, oh, I want people to recognise me. No, but it's me. crazy, isn't it? I just it? think it's, an, it's a curious 
anomaly that you would think suddenly I couldn't walk down the street because everyone knew who I was. Mm. It just, just so weirdly didn't work like that. I just think it's interesting the way cultural consciousness happened, or as you say, happened back then. I think with the internet now, it might be somewhat different. Oh, God, yeah. But that next, within that, between that first and second, I can't remember whether it was series one or series two, if I'm honest, but certainly from having sort of been at sixth form medical school, hoping to sort of make my way in life to be in this thing where suddenly it felt special. And then within a year, uh, being on stage with the rest of the cast, winning a BAFTA yeah. at 18. I'm pretty sure I was 18 or maybe I was 19. I mean, you look, I even look back now and just go, it doesn't seem real. It seems really, really surreal to have been in that position. And what a mix of people to be working with. Carolina Hearn. Uh, absolute legends. Craig. Yeah. Ricky Tomlinson. Sue Johnson. I mean, like... Well, I hadn't really watched Brookside, but I, I knew as a kid, but I knew Ricky from Cracker. Um, yes. And I, was, and I was like, oh my God, is that the guy from Cracker? And they're like, yeah, Ricky Tomlinson. I was like, he's just from Cracker. That's all I need to know. It was like, that was all I was most That was enough. By. Yeah, so it was, but... You know, Caroline, when I walked in, this this is a true story, Caroline went, um, Caroline was so full of mischief. She was really, really funny. But she, she was sort of, she was ruthless with her, like, with, she was so witty. She Well, you knew from Mrs. Merton that that's what she was like. <laughs> um, and if she loved you, if she, if she liked you, then she, she'd she be sort of, she'd, she'd give you more banter than, than if she didn't, right? So I, wa I walked in on, I was 17, I walked into the read-through on the first day. I'm like... Okay, you know, not too nervous, but like, I've got this. And oh, there's Ricky Tomlin, he's great. And there's Sue Johnson. Hi, Caroline. I'd only met Caroline five minutes uh, at, at the audition a few weeks ago, a few weeks previously. And Craig's like, hi, mate, you're all right. And I'm like, hi. And Caroline's like, oh, hi, Ralph, in front of the whole room, you know, crew, producer, director. Hi, Ralph. Uh, oh, we're so glad that you, you were so brilliant in the audition. We're so glad to have you here. And I'm like, oh, thank you, Caroline. That's so nice. But listen, we were all just talking about you. We were all just wondering, uh, are you still a virgin? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh. Uh, <clears throat> and Craig went, oh, Caroline, shut up. You leave him alone. And I sort of went red and she laughed and she went, I'm only joking. And then we, um, and then we read the, uh, you know, did the read through. And then... Um, <laughs> The funniest thing is, uh, I was. <laughs> so I was like, you know, I was like, a couple of years later. Do you think she could smell it? Well, a couple, of, a couple of years later, I went, Caroline, I've got to ask, like, how did you know? And she went, well, you know, I just looked at you. <laughs> I was like, all right, okay. That's so hard. There you go. So that was that was my life on the royal family. But that was, you know, that's what that's what we were all like. We just used to take the piss out of each other all the time, like a family. Um, you know, it was it was genuinely very similar off screen to what it looked like on screen. I'm sure you would never have been able to fully appreciate at the time what a classic show you were inhabiting, and what a milestone show it would be. Not just for you as as performers, but a, a show by which all other great comedies would forever be measured. It, it was a, it was a funny one because because we felt I genuinely believe we felt that we had something special. We felt that it 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 was working and um, and that people we hoped, of course, but we thought people people should love this mm. because I mean. It's always a difficult thing. And I've also been in shows where you're just going, this is great because we're, we're all making the crew laugh. We're making each other laugh so much and, and everything. And then you go, this is going to be great because if we love it this much, everyone else is going to, and then no one watches it. Tumbleweed no, on the ratings. No one gives a shit. <laughs> exactly. So, exactly. Um, 
So you've always got to be a bit careful about that. But it just, I don't know, it just, there was something, sometimes you can feel a bit of magic. It's just the same on stage. You just feel a bit of magic yeah. happening. You think... For we me, were, it was just the best working class hug yeah, yeah. telly ever served up. Yeah, we were tentatively hopeful. But it's, even that's interesting. Like we, we, we sort of hoped and figured that it might be a success up north because it would be so familiar. And then we were surprised that it was a success down south as well. And then we, were sort of, then we thought, well, maybe it's just a working class connection, right? And then we, th then we were so surprised to find out that it was a success sort of with middle class. I mean, we're obsessed with class in Britain anyway. I don't want to kind of be too prescriptive. But what I'm saying is it sort of cr transcended the, these ideas. And then, you know, I keep meeting re genuinely really quite posh people who are like, oh, I, did, I love it. Oh, and um, Prince Harry, years ago, Prince Harry... <laughs> didn't tell me him, didn't tell me himself that would be a lie but i happened to be watching the champions league final at a party where prince harry was nearly jumped on him and celebrated when wayne rooney scored <laughs> the united fan and didn't because my friends grabbed me and i sort of heard a rumor that his security who one of my mates got talking to later who was really lovely was like oh yeah we'd, we'd have had to break your arm mate sorry um if i'd have jumped on <laughs> prince harry, like, oh yeah we'd have had to break your arm and there was so like matter of fact about it i was like i'm probably pretty glad i didn't but anyway we did get talking to a lot of uh, harry's mates at the time and one of them was like oh i'm a massive fan i was like Really? He's like, yeah, we all, we all of us love the royal family. I was like, even, uh, even the big man? He was like, loves it. <laughs> and I was like, really? And he's like, oh, yeah, him and his grand watch it all the time. Brilliant. Now, look, you know, somebody said, somebody said, somebody said, maybe that's not true, but I like to believe it is. It, it sort of genuinely went from this bizarre thing of going, maybe this will be a small northern thing to maybe it'll be a working class thing to whatever and, and to apparently maybe um uh the 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 queen <laughs> used to watch it but my point is i think what linked it for everyone was that broadly speaking every, everyone has a family and family dynamics tend to be very similar and it's really interesting that that transcended class age genre um and also by the way there was only one other show in the world, I'm saying that like it's a fact, I don't know that, but it feels like there was only one <laughs> other show in the world um, at that time in which people on television watched television, and that was The Simpsons. Yeah. You know, I mean, think of it, I can't think of another show. It was kind of a precursor to, the, to, to Gogglebox and everything that's come since, yeah? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the creator of Gogglebox has, has very, you know, openly and proudly stated that she, she was a huge fan of the royal family and, and wanted to find a way to make that into a... Wow, a, a, really? Sort of re well, that would make sense. So totally, and that's, of course, Caroline narrated it and now Craig does. In yeah. fact, Craig once said to me, great idea, wasn't it, Gogglebox? And I was like, yeah, it's brilliant. He's like... Why didn't we think to adapt it? To adapt it? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, well. But, um, so you, there you are, right? That, that one show, that one audition, that one awkward conversation about are you a virgin, <laughs> then puts you on the stage at the BAFTAs. It puts you in a room with members of the royal family who are kind of, you know, letting it be known via yeah. third-hand yeah. friendships that you, they're a fan of your yeah. work. Those have got to be places that a 15, 16-year-old Jew would have thought, well, I'm never going to be there. Just so, so much. I mean, look, career-wise, but just experience-wise, um, it, it never hurts to look back at things and go, that was a really lucky thing. That was an extraordinary thing I, I got to do. And just things like, 
um, I guess when I was younger, it was it was fun to be at like things like part, you know, parties, and and I gave Coldplay their first ever Brit Award. Did you? Yeah, you know, that's a minute the, to remember. Do you know what I mean? I was at the Brit Awards, and it was like, and the winner is Coldplay. Yes, because it was their first album, and I loved them. And I was thinking, well, maybe they'll only have one album, but they're great. <laughs> no, so, <laughs> but, you know, I gave them the award at the Brits, which was crazy, and you know, that's a moment. And um, you know, I love I love football, and I, I've 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 been so lucky. I've I've got to play at. I got to play at most Premier League grounds. I've played, I played at the old Wembley, the new Wembley. I played against Zinedine Zidane. I, there was once a moment. Wow. I, have, I have lived a moment in my ridiculous, just like little life where I somehow found myself at Old Trafford in front of 60,000 people in a television audience. And I, just, just me, Ralph Little, turned around to Jamie Redknapp and said, Jamie, you mark Lewis Figo, I've got Zidane. That is <laughs> one of the stupidest things I've ever said in my entire life. And yet it was real. It seems insane to me. Those are moments that, you know, as the mother of a 14-year-old football-obsessed son, yeah, yeah. I know what that must mean to you. Well, you know, another way I look at it, in terms of absolute luck, right? Some, sometimes it's like, oh, it, it was like winning the lottery. And I, I understand why people say that phrase, but it's not even about, about money. I've done okay, um, but, you know, I'm put it this way, I'm not in a position to go, well, I never need to work again. I'm genuinely not in that position. Like, it's not like... Um, uh, as my other half put, put it, everyone who's on television in America is, is, a, is a millionaire. And, uh, you know, anyone who's been in television in England knows it's, that is not the case. Not it doesn't case. work like that. No. Um, but I've had a comfortable living. Let's, let's put it that way. But it's more the experiences that the job I do has afforded me aren't experiences that you can buy. Totally. That's, that's the thing that's quite extraordinary. You can't buy going on stage at the BAFTAs and picking and getting an award. You can't buy, you can't buy playing at Soccer Aid against Zinedine Zidane. You, you can't buy that. And it's those moments where I go, I am so, I've been so, so lucky. And you've got to take a minute to just go, enjoy it. Don't, don't forget it. Especially if you're a bit down, because it, it's not always a bed of roses. And I, and I genuinely believe until you're Ryan Gosling or, you know, until you're that level, that sort of slight, underlying kind of nagging feeling of what if this is the last one I get what if this is the last job I get what if this one doesn't lead to other things I, I'm not sure that ever goes away it's it's a weirdly mentally tough no, profession to go into I genuinely believe it's it's sort of it's woven into the fabric of, the, of what we do well because so many of our experiences are dictated by others right it's do they like yeah. you are they going to keep you somebody new comes in to to run a show or a network yeah they want to make their own mark you're yeah. just collateral damage uh, it's that but there's a certain amount of like getting validation externally rather than just having it within yeah. you, right and so i think probably there's a lot of people in in my game that that are like that and yet it's this incredible contract uh, con contradiction that you, you, you go into a profession that requires external validation that's also a profession in which you basically get rejected over and over again. I know. It's, it's, it's a, a massive... It's if you were to explain it with any... Messes with, with your head. Yeah, if you just go, do you know what? You're, um, you're going to go forward in life working in a profession that's 95% no's. Yeah. Well, How's that what, sound? I, I, You'd be like, yeah. get lost. Well, do you know what? I, I realised an easy way to, to... A succinct way to put that across to people is... Um, Instead of, instead of calling it an audition, call it a job interview. Yeah. Because most people will have 
a handful of job interviews in their entire life and they'll be really important. They'll probably stress about it or whatever. Prep. Every yeah. audition is a, jo is a job interview, very simply. But again, you know, having said all of that, this isn't me, this isn't about me whinging. It's about kind of, I don't know, um, about reflection and being grateful and being happy and being, um, not taking things for granted because if I, if I was not me listening to me and I got any sense that I was whinging about anything, I'd be going, it's not gone too badly. Yeah. Have a word with yourself. Yeah. So it's more about going, yes, I, I do take time to go. I know how lucky I am. I just thought of another thing that was an extraordinary moment. So just like little, th just silly things like this, where you go, this is just surreal and amazing. And it's just a great thing to, to just be a part of. Sir Ian McKellen went to my school, not in the same year. Uh, and, and, um, no shit, Sherlock. Yeah, and I know he was three years above me. Um, <laughs> we went to the same school and uh, my school has this um, uh, arts centre, theatre arts centre that, uh, that was actually opened by Princess Diana. I was there dressed as Tiny Tim because I'd been in a Christmas carol. I <laughs> met, met Princess There's Diana. There's a moment. I did, I met Princess Diana dressed as Tiny Tim with a crutch. Um... <laughs> And um, so uh, I got this call. Ian McKellen, um, Sir Ian McKellen was having his uh, 80, he was turning 80 a couple of years ago. And his 80th birthday party, he still sort of really loves Bolton. He's from Bolton and he loves the this, this school and, and what have you. And he's sort of got fond memories of it. And the long and short of it is his birthday, a surprise birthday bash was thrown at my school in the theatre, in the arts centre. And and they wanted some of the um, the, the, the lads at the this, this school now, the, you know, six formers and the youngest, the younger lads were so sweet, to do a little performance of some of the theatre stuff that they'd done, because Sir Ian just loves theatre and he's amazing. Um, and I was asked to go and sort of host that and introduce Aww. it. So there I was in front of, you know, some people, some of whom I know and I'm sort of friends with, some of whom I don't know, but nonetheless, just this weird thing where you go, if someone had told me I would ever do this, it would be crazy. There's Serena McKellen, who I've met a couple of times and I know to say hello to, but he's just this legend. Richard Wilson, who I know very well because I've worked with twice and he's just a gorgeous man. But you know, Judy Dench is there and it's just this just incredible great in the good of legends of British film and television and theatre. And there's me going, evening, everyone. Uh, so uh, I want to start like, going, what am I doing here? This is insane. Um, and I hosted this thing when I was like, so first of all, we'd like to bring some of the, the, the boys from year three. Um, they won the, the, the prize, this arts prize this year for their um, Shakespeare sonnet. And, uh, and they, they performed and they were so nervous, these young lads performing for McKellen. There was this extraordinary moment where one of the lads completely dried, forgot his line um, from the middle of oh. the Mer Merchant of Venice. And instead of it being just this awful moment, McKellen, who's sitting as, as far away as you are from me now, they're just standing in front of all of these legends. They dried and instead of it, this letting this awkward moment, McKellen just very, this rich voice just finished the line for him and prompted him for the next one. Just oh. off the top of his head. Wow. Just knows all of Shakespeare. Yeah, I bet just he Just knows does. all of it. And that was just, again, one of those moments where I'm like... How did I end up here? How has this happened? Yeah. And this sort of weird thing about it being back at my school as yeah. well. Full circle. Yeah, yeah. And there was the one other moment is finding out um, people who, who are... The royal family didn't really get much traction in America because um, it never really got a remake, I think, was one of the main reasons. Yeah. 
But there are, you do bump into people who found it and loved it. And amongst those people, Bob Odenkirk, uh, who played um, uh, Saul in Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, talks about it in almost every interview. Loves it. It's his favourite show. Uh, Michael Imperioli, who played Christopher in The Sopranos, talked about it in The Sopranos podcast. My Twitter went insane. And I was like, that's amazing. What an amazing thing. Just the pride of going, I can't believe I was part of this. Matt Groening, I believe, who created The Simpsons, loved it. But the one that got me was Mark Hamill, tweeting about how Luke Skywalker and I'm like if my five-year-old self (laughs) I mean my my 35-year-old self was pretty (laughs) it was was just unbelievable you think about that you've had Luke Skywalker you've got Ian McKellen you've played (laughs) football with legends you've won a BAFTA you're working in the Caribbean as a leading man on one of the BBC's highest rating dramas yeah well done. Experiences. I'm, I've, I've led a very, very lucky life, I have yeah. to say. And, but I'm very, very grateful for it, which is the most important thing. Well, there's, there's some pretty extraordinary places that we've discussed just there yeah. that this has taken you. So that's, yeah. that's quite something. Okay, you ready for your next question? Yes. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Number two, you met and fell in love with your fiancé, Lindsay, a very successful playwright and screenwriter, when you starred in a play that she wrote. And you're no stranger to the pen yourself. You've written before. So I wondered, if you had to write Ralph Little the movie, what are the scenes from your own past that would make the final cut? And what are the moments that you would condemn to the cutting room floor? Oh, plenty of those. <laughs> plenty of those. Plenty of those that I don't particularly want. What are you thinking? I want to now air all my <laughs> terrible, dirty laundry on this podcast. Um, there are... I'm just trying to think how far back to go, really. Um, but it's you as a story. So, so we know that you had an appetite for acting. You went yeah. to Saturday school drama mm-hmm. uh, clubs or Saturday, Saturday drama school. Yeah, drama, yeah. drama group, yeah. A drama group. But fundamentally, actually, you know, you were raised... In a family where you've got a brother and sister, both medical yeah. professionals, one doctor, one nurse. Yeah. Um, 
what was what was your childhood like? Why, why so much medicine in a family that was born of accountants? I'm not quite sure about that, actually. I am... Um, it's a good question. I, uh, the weirdest thing is, so my sister's older than me, my brother's 10 years younger, and I, my sister got into nursing. She's nursing the NHS, um, and she's only been doing that relatively recently in the last, I actually don't know how many years, but like relatively, we got into it later in life. It wasn't something that she went into straight away. So the, the timeline is slightly weird. I uh, started med school, then dropped out. 10 years later, my brother then started med school, uh. and then... My sister became a nurse. So weirdly, I was the first one to sort of enter that field. Also the first one to eject very quickly from it. <laughs> and so then when my, my brother, sort of 10 years later, is like medical school success, he's, he's, he's very nearly a consultant now. Uh, and so I, I always feel like, she's never said it out loud, but I always feel like my mum's a little bit like, ah, I got one, got one doctor. <laughs> Had to wait 10 years, but I got one. Um, and to sort of come back to your question, like my mum would be a big, a big character. She's, she's a... She's a character. She's, she's quite eccentric. Is she? Uh, I've said this before. She's she's like a she's like the sort of stereotype you see in movies of a very caring, uh, uh, like old uh, Jewish mum. Um, you're not Jewish, are you? Who isn't Jewish? Yeah, okay. exactly. <laughs> but you know what I mean. That sort of like um, always wanting the best for your kid, sort of being a little bit accidentally critical without realizing you're doing it. <laughs> Just, going, just said in a nice soft tone. Yeah, sort of like, it'd be like, you got 97% in that exam, that's amazing. Although that is 3% that you dropped, you could probably, it's like, like that kind of thing. That's very, that's very much the sort of tone that, uh, that we were brought up with. Um, and I guess it kind of did make us competitive, um, sort of overachievers and you know I don't say that in an arrogant way, it's just like that sort of drive to be you, like that you parental were formidably, thing. formidably, um, driven with your studies weren't you and sport yeah i mean everything my my mom was the first um of her family my mom comes from a, a lineage of uh miners and very very working class family and her my grandparents her parents were very working class and my grand worked three jobs to put my well, my mom through grammar school my mom managed to go to berry, berry grammar and then my mom was the first to go to university well wow, that's and big it was a huge huge thing not to have a job but a career yeah exactly and to have that kind of aspiration vocation, aspiration vocation mm. exactly rather than just you know find a way to, to make ends meet and it, I guess it sort of made my mum, and I do mean this not in a derogatory way, it made my mum like a social climber. And so she, she was really determined to make the most of that education that she had been given mm. and really determined to, um, I guess, just achieve. And so when, when we were born, we were sort of born into this very kind of like high expectation, um, high expectation, high achieving uh, do your best in everything you can. Now, before sort of anyone starts to go, is he all right? Does he need to speak to someone about this? Um, <laughs> you know, I had a childhood that was very much, you know, filled with love and encouragement. But nonetheless, a sort of uh, expectation or uh, if expectation is too harsh a word, a certain drive to go, always, always, always do the best of everything you can. I played every sport under the sun. Um, and to quite a like decent level because my parents ploughed all their time and energy into me and my siblings. Monday nights, uh, I'd get off, we'd get off the school bus, me and my sister, and um, she'd be taken to uh, 
uh, ballet, I mean, in, in the modern world, like it wouldn't be quite so gendered, these activities, but yeah. it was the 80s. You know, she was taken to ballet class and I was taken to football training. And then we'd, uh, uh, my dad would be at work, so my mum, so my grandparents were enlisted to take, to pick me up from football. Then I'd have dinner in the car and then we'd both meet, me and my sister would both meet up at um, uh, swimming class, right? And that was just Monday and it was kind of like this every night. So, um, we just sort of did a bit of everything and sort of trained at everything. Now, if I ever get around to having kids, which I'm not averse to, I just have never found, found the time. Like, and I keep going, ah, it'll be fine. And I'm like, actually... Trust I'm... me, the actual making of the baby doesn't take that long in my experience. <laughs> it's the raising of them, Ralph. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. You're looking I, at 20 I, minutes versus 20 tw years. 20 minutes, that's just showing off. <laughs> I was thinking I've got about 15 seconds in me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that now, I'm going to top you up. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. Yeah, then there's no chance. Um, yeah. So if I, if I ever get around to having kids, I would want to give them as the same as many opportunities as possible because I think it's an extremely... Well, you, were, you were given it, like a buffet of experiences that yeah, life had to offer. and it's an extremely privileged way to grow up. And, and actually, to be honest, it's not... Um, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, I mean, we weren't by any means uh, struggling, but we didn't have a lot of money. But what money we did have was ploughed into um, furthering in a very sort of almost like calculated way into furthering our life Estimate. experience for us to succeed in yeah. whatever we chose to do. And I look back now, talking about what you're grat grateful for and talking about gratitude, I look back now and just go, they really made some serious sacrifices. Now, my only, since we're being reflective, my only wish looking back is that they'd... Um, is that they'd taken a bit more time for themselves. Like I was, I was skiing over New Year, right? And I, I learned to ski when I was four years old because there was a dry ski slope nearby where, where I was from. I didn't actually go on a ski trip with the school for, for nearly, nearly 10 years. But by the time I did, I was like an accomplished skier because I'd been doing this ski club once a month at this, this dry slope in Rossendale, uh, Ski Rossendale, um, since I was like four years old. So I don't, I don't remember learning to ski, I can just put on a pair of skis and go. What a privilege that is. What a, what a lucky thing that is to not go, oh, I'm, I'm just... But that was your mum and dad going, we won't sit in front of the telly tonight. Exactly. We'll take Ralph to the dry exactly. slopes. And then he's got swimming club, then you go and put exactly. your sister up. Yeah. But the, but the one regret that I have looking back is for them, because they can't ski. They didn't <laughs> join us on the, you know, in the ski club, because it was a kid's ski club. They were so busy putting all their energy and time into opportunities for us that they, I think, sort of lost a lot for themselves and it's, it slightly breaks my heart looking back. Do you think as well, though, I mean, I know that you lost your sister when you were young. Your other sister passed away in a, a terrible accident when she was 14, you were nine. Yeah. Do you think that had an impact on the way your parents kept so busy and kept you all so busy? I think, I think it's a fair question. I mean, that was already the way... That, that things were. There was that, that plan, I guess, had been in place since day, since day one. I don't think it's a coincidence that it sort of stepped up a, a level. Every, every, every win, every, every badminton tournament won, dance recital won, you know, everything almost took on more significance than well done because it was like, it probably was very affirming for them to see us succeed in stuff, um, in helping to sort of pass that, that grief. So yes, uh, I think- And also, I think as well, when you, you, you can't even begin to comprehend that, that grief. I, I can't, as a parent, I sit and I just think, I don't know how I'd, I'd, I don't know that I'd want to be here without my son. And yet your parents didn't have that option because they had three other children. So I guess you don't sit with your sadness, you just stay busy. 
Yeah, uh, you know, uh, yes, I think that's exactly true. I also think that um, attitudes are much more progressive now, even than they were two years ago, even than they were, certainly sure. than they were five, ten years ago. But attitudes to things like um, counselling, to therapy, all that kind of thing, are so much more progressive. Uh, to the point where we're now a bit like, you know, maybe, maybe you should just go to therapy... Uh, oh, but that didn't not, exist then. Yeah, but not just to like get over some trauma that that existed. But like people just maybe I should just go because, you know, in in some ways, even if you're not dealing with a specific issue, it can it can be like the the brain equivalent of going to the gym. Yeah. It can also be so much more for if you're really you know struggling with something. But like, my parents never never went to grief counselling, never went to therapy, and I, I can't imagine how they processed that. I can't imagine yeah. what that must have been like for them. And, and and to this day never have and, and and never will because it's just not what their generation does. It's not really, certainly wasn't a done thing in this country. So I do find that the fact that um, culturally uh, and societally we've become much more um, aware of the benefits of that is, is, is a huge step That's forward. That's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, really, really good thing. We can't, yeah, we can't underestimate the importance of that. So we've, so we've got in this movie, we've got this very busy childhood with this kind of superhero slightly jewish non-jewish mother <laughs> yeah. just just driving and striving for yeah. all of her kids all of her chicks to to, yeah. to progress yeah. and and realize their best selves their full potential yeah. um what else is going to sit on on the screen with this movie how how does the story pick up from there well i mean if you know i guess there's, there's the royal family, of course, which came along, and then um, it would be it would be hard to describe. It would be hard for we we all sort of talk about a crossroads in life, and um, you know a, a lot of the time you look back and you go that was a bit of a crossroads that was a bit of a crossroads. I have the most clear crossroads. Like it, it the royal first episode of the royal family. So I started September ninety eight. I started medical, Manchester Medical School on the Monday and the first episode ever of The Royal Family was aired on the Thursday of the same week. No way. And what a week. In the same, I know. <laughs> it was just insane. Wow. And sort of within three, two, three or four weeks, I'd noticed a change because I still had the agent I'd had all through sort of when I was a teenager. And I sort of suddenly noticed a change in the number of calls she was getting. And the number of, I had always done acting as a hobby along with all the sports that I did along with everything. And I, um, I just thought, um, I never really thought I would do it as a career. I never, again, this is my sort of parents' influence. And my parents were, did very well because they, they were never pushy. So certainly a word I've avoided indiscriminately. It wasn't that they were pushy. Um, but they sort of they raised me just to be quite sort of sense, slightly boringly sensible. They were a bit like, <laughs> you can be anything you want to be. And I'm like, okay, cool. And they went, but a good thing for you to be would probably be this, right? So, yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, okay that, that makes sense. And I always loved the idea of being a doctor. It wasn't like it was something that was forced on me. But that sort of follow your dreams, you never know, you know, write songs, you might be in a rock band, be an actor. It was never... It, w it seemed too fanciful for me to really... I never even considered it. I was, too, be, I was raised too sensible. That's why I never went to drama school. It wasn't like I applied to drama schools going, this is a dream I've always had. And weirdly, I guess it was a dream that I'd always had, but I was too, like, overly grounded to really pursue it. Yeah. Um, and so when this, this just opportunity came along, and I was like, 
okay, casting directors are interested. It was like that crossroads in my life was so, so clear. It was either stay in this thing that I would have loved and been very fulfilled doing that's a very, very stable, very clear path in life or go and do this thing that seems even more fanciful but like a dream that's got no stability, no path in life, no, you know, no guarantees of anything. No. Take that chance. And I literally had to make that decision within, within a couple of weeks. And um, ultimately it came, I'll tell you what it came down to. I remember saying the words out loud. I just feel like if I don't take this chance, I'll turn around when I'm 40 and, and regret regret it not not sort of seeing what would have happened and the reason i said that and do you and think chose, that dr little would have thought that today well, i'll tell you what's <laughs> awful is the reason i said i chose the age 40 was because it seemed inconceivably yes. far away and i'm 43 in february i'm like how's this <laughs> how has this happened i kind of secretly felt like i was going to be the only person to not age but it didn't work out yeah um, i was the same <laughs> yeah so so that was that crossroads would have to be represented i would yeah. say in, in some major probably way. the first big adult decision you made for yourself as well Yes. Well, and, and I've talked about my parents and, and they were actually, this might be surprising given the things I've said, this is what I mean about how they weren't pushy. I said, what do you guys think? And they went, it's nothing to do with us. And I was like, what do you mean? I, mean, I need some advice here. And they're like, no, no, we're not saying that we won't give you advice if you really need it. But ultimately, it doesn't matter what we think at all. This is your decision. It's your life. You have to do what you want to do. Now, for what I've described, which could be seen as them being a little bit overbearing or pushy, like that's what they were yeah. like. They were like, it's amazing. This is everything we've done to this point has been for you to be able to make your own informed decisions. And um, you know, they sort of respected me in that way, and that gave me the uh, confidence to make my decision. Um, my mum's never let me live it down since. Uh, <laughs> she's like, why weren't you a doctor? <laughs> yeah, like your brother. Yeah, Look exactly. at your sister. Uh, but, but, you know, they were great. But when did you make the move from Manchester to London? Because that must have been a big moment. Um, I, this, will be in, this is a bit in your wheelhouse. When I was about um, nine, 19, I think it was, maybe 20, like late 19, I was in the royal family, so I was going around doing, you know, interviews. Oh, I got to go on live and kicking. I was dead excited. <laughs> uh, um, yeah. uh, that again goes back to our first question, like a place you never thought you'd face, well, Saturday morning I, kids telly. Yeah, well, actually, yeah, you know, I watched it when I was a teenager yeah. growing up. But things like, I was just stupid stuff. That, that, But, you know, I met and got to know Zoe Ball. And I was like, she's amazing. She's really cool. And she's talking to me like I'm just a friend. And I was like, oh, shit, maybe I am. That's ridiculous, you know. Yeah. Uh, anyway, I was interviewed on um, uh, MTV Select, it was called, back mm. in the day. And I, back in those days, you've got to remember, there's a lot of stuff that I regret that please no one go and start Googling. There's a, there's a lot of stuff that I was like, oh, I wish you hadn't said that. But it was very much of its time. Like, it was, people forget that the 90s and early noughties were such a kind of balls out, lads, lads, lads. Women were expected to be kind of the same and not just expected to be, but it was like, yeah, I'm cool. I can mix it with the lads. And it, you look back and you go, yeah, it was a kind of a bit of a toxic time, actually. But like, it, that's what society was, you know? Yeah. So I was just, I really leaned into just being like, I'm from Manchester. I'm in the show. I'm cocky, right? That was my like thing. Lads, lads, lads. Lads, 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 right? So I went on, and to be fair, it got some attraction. I did make people laugh. And I went on MTV Select and I was kind of funny and kind of confident and kind of cocky. And I got a call going, do you want to come and 
try presenting for an episode or two. So I did. And then did they went, you? I didn't yeah. know that. Well, and then they went, do you want to do three days a week? I was like, yeah, sure. Um, and having a year previously uh, quit medical school and not being inundated with offers, it wasn't like suddenly I had loads of money and I was doing everything. It was like, okay, this is reg semi-regular work that's coming in. This is my moment to move to London. If I don't do it now, I'll never do it. And I actually, I ended up, I only did MTV. I did it with Edith Bowman and Kelly Brook. Any, I probably only did it for two months, three months total. But great. But that was the, that was the catalyst to go, it's time to move to London and do this. Um, so yeah. And once you get here. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You're in, but, you right? know, again. Was it bright lights? Was, was, yeah. was your head turned? Uh, totally, yeah, totally. When I first came to London, I was having a ball and I was in the coolest TV show in the country. And so I'd be out. I'd be out in clubs. I'd be out in pubs. I'd be out. I was both sort of simultaneously rock and roll and boring, right? I was a single 20-year-old actor who liked to have a few drinks and chat up girls. I was in the coolest show on television, I hosted the first ever GQ Men of the Year Awards, right? Wow. Like, that's where things were for me at the time. So we will cover that in the, in the film. And what about meeting Lindsay for the first time? Is that a scene that would have to, to make the final cut? Well, if you want to do... Uh, if you want to get quite nerdy about this and talk about Save the Cat structure or screenwriting structure, you'd have your... Um, your setup first sort of 10 pages would be, you know childhood probably you know tragedy and all the way up to royal family medical school crossroads yeah break into two up to page 55 would be fun and games fun and games two pints fame two pints, hedonism fame. but just you know having a fun time having a, having a great time and working on two pints having just loving being in london uh having these amazing life experiences uh and then uh, i guess uh midpoint what would that be um yeah, midpoint would maybe be sometime. It's always difficult. Bad guys close. It's after the midpoint, you've got your bad guys closing in where things start to go wrong. Like something happens and then things start to go yeah. wrong for a while. But that is often known as your 30s. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, let's just call it that. <laughs> yeah. Um, you'd have to say things were going wrong for me in, in a way that you'd have to take a bit of artistic license because I've been very lucky in that nothing's really gone terribly kind of wrong tits up for me, career or life wise. Um, in, as, as an adult um but you know you'd probably loop in uh uh career disappointments um what would they be though i, I couldn't i couldn't find many or any um <laughs> i've been trying to save this story for when graham norton asks me on his uh chat show but um he, <laughs> hasn't, he hasn't done yet i don't i can't, <laughs> I can't buy a place his losses might gain yeah, go exactly yeah <laughs> um i probably I probably shouldn't have accidentally insulted Tom Hanks when I was 22. Put it that, put it that way. <laughs> um, oh, no. You insulted, like, the godfather. Just the nicest guy in the world. Yeah. This is my Tom Hanks story. We... I got an audition along, along with everybody of my age in the country for Band of Brothers because they were making Band of yes. Brothers the seminal, brilliant yeah, I remember Spielberg, it well. uh, Tom Hanks. Um, you would have been early 20s by 22. then. 22. Uh, yeah, and everyone in this country was sort of went for this audition, and so we we all went for like a first audition, and you get like a five minute slot. You're doing a bit of reading with the casting director, she's an American casting director. She's come over, and um, 
I walk into a room and to be honest, by this point, it was like walking into a room was when, when I was a child doing auditions as a kid, because then there'd be hundreds of kids all over and you'd sort of hope to get whittled down and down to the last two or whatever. I hadn't been used to this now for a couple of years because I got a bit of a, of, of a name at this point. So mostly I was seen with like five or six other people, whatever. Anyway, I walk in and there's like 50 people, 50 lads sitting there all my age, all kind of levels of where they are in their career. And they're all sweating, dead nervous. And remember, as we've already talked about, at that time, what played a lot was a sort of swaggery, it was post, post Liam Gallagher kind of swaggery. Yeah, I'm just a northern, you know, you know, all this oh, kind of thing. No. Sort of like, like I did. So, oh, don't tell me you did that. So, well, well, oh. so I, I told you already, I was sort of leaning into that quite a lot at that time. So, I sit down at this, interview, uh, this uh, in the waiting room and I see there's like 50 people and they're all sweating, they're all sort of shaking, reading, because it's a big, big job, this. And they're all reading the, the, the two-page script that I've got for the audition. And I'm like, I'm not going to be like the rest of them. I'm going to be a bit memorable. So I just sort of pull out a copy of Loaded, which I used to read when oh. I was 22. Pull out a copy of Loaded and I'm just like flicking through it performatively. I'm not really reading it, but I'm like, I'm not going to look like I'm nervous like everyone else. Anyway, they come out, call my name. They're like, Ralph Little? And I'm, I think I did something like, oh, sorry. And they're like, Ralph Little. And I'm like, uh, I look at my watch and I'm like, oh, are you sure? It's just five minutes early. Are you sure? Someone else can go in if you like. I don't mind. Like just overly confident in a way that was a lie. But that was the, that was what I was doing. <laughs> right? So she's like, no, no, come on. And I'm like, yeah, all right, sound, you know. <laughs> Put my loading magazine in my bag, walked in. Anyway, look, I can't remember what I said in uh, with this, this casting director, but I was talking to her, and within like 30 seconds, I'd sort of been like a little bit caught, walked that line between like confidence and arrogance, walked it well, been a little bit cheeky, a bit of banter, and I'd made her laugh two or three times, and I'm thinking, this is going great. And she goes, uh, oh, I love your sense of humour. It's so great. You're so British. I love it. Um, would you like to come back in, uh, to come back in two weeks' time and uh, audition with Tom Hanks? And even then, I didn't go, oh, yeah, I'd love to. Even then, I just went, yeah, I mean, I don't think I'm busy, you know. So I'm like, <laughs> just, you know, just just awful. Just what a dick, right? What a dick. So anyway, so of course. So cringing for oh, you. It's, honestly, like, oh, oh, it was just awful. <laughs> My bums eating this seat in just yeah. embarrassment, even as I'm saying it. So... So for the next two weeks, right, I'm like, great, great. And, and this is how big this audition was. They, they, it was down to 18 of us for the first, they only, after that initial audition, they picked 18 people for the main nine roles. And um, so it was basically a one in two chance of trying to, trying to get this role. They sent all 18 people pre the audition to a voice coach, an accent coach, to a preeminent accent coach, one of the most famous ones. So like never before or since in my entire career has a production company sent me to a voice coach for an audition. They might send you after you get the part, but yeah. they never sent it for the audition. So we go for the audition. So we go for the thing. So it's, it's a big deal. The day comes, Athenaeum Hotel, Green Park. Bougie. Very bougie in a suite. Oh. Walk upstairs. Okay. And I'm thinking, just remember... You're not still doing your Liam Gallagher stars oh, in your I, eyes no, impression? So I'm thinking, just remember what got you here. Be, you know, don't be a dick, don't be arrogant, but, you know, you can push it a little bit, be confident, make him laugh, right, whatever. Right, so I'm like... <clears throat> they go, Ralph Little, come on in. So I go like that, knock on the door. Come in. I open the door and I walk in to a room that's bigger than, like, you know, I, 
I've played football at like indoor leisure centers and the room isn't as big as this room. Like, this is sweet. <laughs> and far in the distance as this table of Hollywood execs who sort of all like, they're, they're looking at my headshot and CV and they sort of look at me and sort of sneer at me a little bit because I'm just, you know. But Tom Hanks, God bless Tom Hanks, leaps from the table. He comes running across the room. Hey, Ralph, how are you, man? It's so good of you to come. He was just the most gorgeous man ever. He's only read my name on a piece of paper two seconds ago. He doesn't know me, but he's made this effort to make me feel comfortable, to welcome me into this daunting scene. What a ledge. Just, a, oh, just honestly lovely. And he goes, how are you doing, man? Is, is everything okay? And I, I was like, make him laugh to say something. And I went, I'll be honest, Tom. I'm sick to the pit of my stomach. And he's like, oh God. Now, sorry, I should clarify this. Well, he's filming Castaway at the time. <laughs> so he's emaciated and he's got a big beard, beard bigger than Santa yeah. Claus and his hair's long. So he doesn't look like Forrest Gump Tom Hanks, right? <laughs> he looks like he looks like Castaway Tom Hanks. So Wilson that, Tom Hanks. That yeah. was a bit of a shock, yeah. right? But anyway, I was like, I'll be honest, Tom, I'm sick to the pit of my stomach. And he goes, oh no, oh, oh gosh. Uh, are you, are you not well? And I was like, no, it's just, you know, big audition, isn't it? Probably nerves. And there's this pause and I'm going, please laugh, please laugh, please laugh. And he just went, hey, I like this guy. Hey, I like this guy. He's honest. I like this guy. And I'm like, this is great. You've done well. You've got the door open. Now just push your, push your advantage home. So I was like, think of something to say. Think of something. I've literally just walked through the door and I go, uh, nice beardage, by the way because of his beard. And he goes, uh, uh, nice, what? Sorry, excuse me. And I'm like, bearded, beardage, uh, nice, nice beardage. And he's obviously not understanding what I'm saying. And he's like, I'm sorry, sorry, what? And I'm starting to panic now because this moment has passed and it's starting to get cringy and awkward and I'm starting to sweat. And I go, no, bit, sorry, I'm just, I'm not saying, I'm uh, beardage, it's just a silly word. I'm just saying, it's not a real word. I, I just meant oh, like no. beard. I'm just, just trying to make a, a because you've got the big, and I just be. Uh, 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 I'm just <laughs> trying to say, you know, nice, nice beard, right? And even as I was drowning in this moment, Tom Hanks tries to rescue me. He's so oh, lovely. Him. He goes, he goes. Oh, beard, beardage. Oh, I see. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm hyperventilating <laughs> at this point. And he goes, beardage. Oh, this old thing. I, uh, it's, uh, hey, it, it's not even for a role. It's, uh, it's, it's just fashion, you know. And I'm panicking so much this way. He goes, it's just fashion, you know. Uh, you like it? And I went, nah. You look like shit. <laughs> oh, you did not. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. Yeah. And what did he say? Well, I mean, look, he knew it was a joke, right? <laughs> but he, he, wasn't, he, wasn't, he wasn't offended. It was just more the fact that I was now standing there going, what did you just say to, to Tom, Tom Hanks? What? Did you... Did you just... Did you just stand in front of Tom Hanks and tell him he looks like shit? <laughs> I think you did. I think you did. I think you actually did. Yeah, so I... I the you didn't get is, the part. Well, no, I did not get the role. <laughs> and the truth is, I don't think I didn't get the role because I said that. I think I didn't get the role. I don't think he gave it. Like, he's, he's, he, um, you know, he laughed and, and, and it was, he was just lovely about it. But um, I just spent the next... I can't remember any of the audition. All I remember is sitting in a chair going, 
you told Tom Hanks he looks like shit. So I, I read the script terribly. I just, I choked in the biggest way you've ever known. So yeah, that's... Yeah. If as ever much any, as you want to condemn that, that moment, the cutting room floor, I think it needs to stay in the film. Yeah, oh, it's definitely a learning experience. Now, this day, whenever anybody says to me, have you got any advice for someone wanting to become an actor? I'm like, yeah, work really hard and don't tell A-list Hollywood stars that they look like shit. <laughs> that would be my first two points. Be nice to Tom Hanks. Yeah. There's, there's, there's a funny postscript to that story, actually, which is a few years later I was telling it because it's such an actor story and everyone's like, oh, no. Uh, and I was telling it to... A friend of mine, in, uh, uh, we were out just having a drink with a couple of friends of hers. And uh, these friends were um, uh, uh, two American guys, Colin and a guy called Kieran. And, um, and I was chatting to them and we were exchanging anecdotes and whatever. And I said, well, I've got this anecdote. And I told him the Tom Hanks story. And Colin, at the end of the story, he went, oh, my God, do you want to know what's even funnier about that story? And I went, what? He goes, that's my dad. <gasps> it was Colin Hanks. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> right? And... And I, I, I literally said out loud, I was like, thank God that in that story, I'm extremely complimentary about how nice Reverential. Because that would have been really, really awkward. <laughs> and Colin was like, you know, he wouldn't have minded. I was like, no, of course he wouldn't have minded. It was just more the point that I was just dying on my feet. And I didn't get the part. And I did not get the role. <laughs> yeah, so no, I very much didn't get the role. I do hope that one day you get to see Tom Hanks again and correct that. I'm desperate to. I'm desperate. <laughs> the, the one, the most amazing full circle thing would be to finally get on that Graham Norton couch. With Tom. With Tom Hanks and Tell go, story. we've actually met before. He won't remember because to him, he never thought about it again. But I've thought about it almost every day of my life. <laughs> <laughs> when you look back on it, it's quite extraordinary, isn't it? You've done a lot. Well done, kid. Well, I, I, I meant it, actually, when I said... I meant it when I said, like, when you introduced me, I was like, yeah, so I know I've talked a lot about trying to be grateful and trying to be mindful of what you've got. And so I, I say that a lot because when I'm talking about I felt like you know, this didn't work out and that didn't work out. I've been very lucky and sometimes it's easy, it's, you, you can't, you, it's quick to lose sight of that. So when you gave that introduction, I was just sitting here going, yeah, it's not, that's not bad, you know, because it's too easy to kind of go, well, so-and-so has been, kind of been doing better than me and so-and-so is there. Oh, and the 18 got... year old you would have taken that in a heartbeat. Yeah, in a heartbeat, in a heartbeat. So, you know, no complaints. So my third and final question. last question to you. I want to know what happiness has looked like across the decades that we've discussed on this episode. So what does happiness look like to you today versus, let's start uh, with you as an 18-year-old man, what would have put a huge big smile on 18-year-old Ralph's face? Well, um, <laughs> what put a smile on 18-year-old Ralph's face was... Um, suddenly girls talking to him because he was on television. Yeah. <laughs> very, very much put a smile on my face. Yeah, that was, that was great fun. <laughs> I bet it was. Yeah. Um, Did you take advantage of your popularity? Yeah, uh, I mean, 
Yes, nobody fancied me as a teenager. I mean, oh, oh, what a unique perspective that is for a teenage boy. Oh, no one fancies me. Of but course, that is like, the most important stuff at that time in your life. Is like, yeah, that's what like everything is about. Especially when you join the show as a seventeen-year-old virgin. Yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Called out in the audience. Yeah, in, like, in the, in the, I'm eighteen now. I'm not a virgin. Let's talk. <laughs> <laughs> called out by Carolina Hurd, who could smell your virginity. Yeah, yeah. I put a call out in front of everyone, all my work colleagues. Um, very amusingly. Um, I mean, yeah, you know, I, I guess I did, actually. I, I uh, But it's interesting. I guess this comes back to... Remember, I, we were talking earlier about um, uh, performers, actors, people who go into the thing, a lot of people being about validation externally. Um, probably fed into a lot of that as well. There was probably uh, almost definitely a sort of sense of... Um, oh, yeah, I, I always... Uh, yeah, now you know. I always knew I had something to offer, and now you now you can see validation. And yeah, validation. And you know, obviously, I knew that I I would be sort of getting a certain amount of attention, or 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 be or talking to people because of the the job that I did. But I would always rationalise it, going, "So that's just an attribute I have. That's just like having muscular arms or a, or blue eyes. You know what I mean? It's like." But I think you had to walk through life being very good at everything. You know, you were, you didn't just do well at sports. You were a semi-pro footballer. I mean, that must have been a cause of great happiness to a young Ralph. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I started. I started playing semi-pro when I was, uh, let's think, um, twenty. Four. See that—that's extraordinary. You're already a big telly star. Yeah? I was doing two pints at the time. Yeah. You've insulted Tom Hanks. Yeah, I already <laughs> have. Yeah. yeah. You've lost your virginity. Yeah. And bang! How did that happen? Well, there was a before Soccer Aid. There was a show on Sky called The Match. They did three series. Remember seasons that? Of it. Yeah. And um, the match was a slightly different format than Soccer Aid. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you how it, that how they relate. The, the match. The, the idea was. Take a load of legends, uh, players who, you know, are a bit older, but were world-class talent. And then take a bunch of like plucky, but and younger, sort of fit, but like nowhere near the same amount of talent, young kind of celebs, right? Put all the celebs on one team, put all the legends, uh, legends the ex-pros on another team, have them both train for a week put them together and see what happens. Put the, play them against each other and see ah. what happens. So it wasn't like the mixture of Soccer Aid where it was like, it's essentially it's an exhibition of, it was non-ex-pros against ex-pros. Yeah. Still quite giddy stuff, well, right? listen, I was 24. That's another thing that I'm talking, that I said about <laughs> like things where you go, I can't believe I'm doing this. 50 odd thousand people at St. James's Park in Newcastle. I'm, pl I'm playing against like, um, my heroes, Peter Beersley, Brian Robson, Chris Waddle. No, uh, really? Just, yeah, so I was- Chris Waddle, Diamond Lights. Exactly, you know, <laughs> just unbelievable. Anyway, that 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 night, um, I just kind of had the game of my life. So I'd be making tackles in the penalty area. I'd be smashing into Peter Beardsley, dispossessing him of the ball. Like nine times out of ninety nine times out of a hundred, if I'd have attempted that, sort of quite on the edge, not far from reckless, but on the edge, tackle. That's a red card and a penalty. But that night. Everything worked. I just had the game of my life. The football gods were smiling on me. And I won man of the match voted for by the public. And wow. again, just what I'm, it was honestly, it's genuinely one of the best nights of my life. 
And for about three months, I was the best person I've ever been in my entire life. Oh, I really but, was. But doesn't that in some ways endorse what your parents were always trying to do in terms of helping you to, if you think about life as Maslow's hierarchy of needs, you know, actualization is yeah. what we all strive for, which is realising your full potential as a human being. Yeah. That night you did, and the halo effect was long-lasting. It just all came yeah. together. And it was the halo effect, actually, was, was part of um, the great late great Graham Taylor who was a wonderful man um ex-England mm. manager just an amazing man he was our manager for the for the week and so we trained for a week and I mean, just together, that is massive yeah bro. ate together in a in training camp weren't allowed to leave and everything it was all filmed but you know all eating together and and the sort of team spirit team bond he sort of stripped away cynicism in a way that I've never seen anybody do before he stripped cynicism away from all of us we were a team we just we loved each other we would have gone to battle for each other on that on that day and that was all from graham taylor and i played that game it was one of the best nights of my entire life everything went my way and for about three months i just walked around go it just with the positive uh, probably i was quite annoying because the positivity i was radiating <laughs> it didn't last eventually it sort of dissipated <laughs> to my cynical self again but just for three months it was just I just felt on top of the world. But you know what? If you hadn't after that, then there's something wrong with you. Yeah, it was the most amazing experience. Yeah. And I, I felt like that's those three months are probably I was the best human being I've ever been in terms of like kindness to other people, just, just helping old ladies across the road. <laughs> and, you know, it was just ridiculous. Um, you know, I could, you know, calling my mum every day, like I'm supposed I, uh, to, rather than, how you are know, you? rather than once every couple of weeks when I remember. Um, <laughs> Um, so, so anyway, the long and short of it is, after that game, it was like the kind of football world was a bit like, hello, he can, he can play actually, he's not bad. And is that uh, how it came about? Yeah, and I got a few calls from semi-pro clubs going, we want to sign you. Um, I actually, I actually got a few offers of trials for for clubs, club, not big clubs, but but a few like pro clubs, and I was like, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna. I'm doing two pints. I can't. I can't go and try out. Try out. What if they offer me a contract? What will that happen then? I'm not going to leave two pints to go and play for like a a professional and great club, but like a small town club. Like I'm not going to do that. Um, but semi-professional. Uh, yeah. And I started Edgware, then went to Chelsea, and then I went to Windsor, which was the league above. And um, and I played there for a couple of years, and then ultimately I it was it became too difficult to sustain with because I got another job outside of two pints, and I just couldn't. I couldn't make the commitment anymore. It started yeah. to become too difficult. Two but worlds collide. As a life experience, I'm so, so glad I did it. It was an amazing thing to have done. That's a great, yeah. great Met source of great happiness. Met some I've got a lifelong friend now from that who was my manager at Chertsey. Um, so, you know, it was, what an amazing thing to do. Is there a moment of great happiness um, when you find your voice, as you did on Twitter, with two, uh, I mean, like, one of, <laughs> you became something of a legend in Twitter <laughs> circles for your incredible takedowns. My favourite was with Gosh. Nigel Farage. He tweeted, I'll have no choice but to return to frontline politics if Brexit is delayed. You replied, Sorry. I will have no choice but to return to the International Space Station, where I have also never been. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Never been on frontline politics. Yes, this is what you're talking about. Yeah. And then you did a 42 tweet takedown of Jeremy Hunt oh, yeah. when he was the health secretary. That came about because, well, first of all, my, my siblings are both in the NHS, so I certainly have their first-hand uh, account account and ideas about what's going on. Um, but I was sort of also in touch, sort of Twitter friends, really, who I you know um, doctors and stuff who I'd had a bit of banter with and. 
I was asking them what's, what was going on. And it was like the conditions were unsafe. They were talking about having to strike and all this kind of thing. And I find, look, to be honest, I'm quite a fan of industrial action anyway. I'm, I'm you know, call me a Marxist if, if you like, in sort of the sort of go-to insult that people use because they can't think of anything else. Um, but like, if you're having to strike for pay, imagine how bad things have got. Imagine how you, you imagine what the conditions are like that you're not getting paid properly. Right? I don't think people strike for pay and go, we want to be paid a million pounds a year each. They just want it to be kept up with with societal norms, right? Inflation. Um, yeah, inflation, societal Cost norms, of all living. of that kind of thing. Yeah, and the ability to work safely. Yeah. Well, and in terms of safety, whether it's lorry drivers, train drivers, you know, hours, tiredness, all that kind of thing, but especially, you know... Doctors. Well, a lorry driver wouldn't be allowed to do the hours no, that a junior exactly. doctor does. Well, exactly, and that was the point that was being made. It's like a lorry driver has more protection over their... A lorry driver has more protection over their hours than doctors did, right? So, anyway, I was hearing about all this, and there was, there was a strike going on, and I, I just couldn't believe that politicians were coming out and, and trying and succeeding, from what I was seeing on Twitter, in in painting doctors, let's be clear, NHS doctors, A&E doctors, in painting them as greedy, selfish, just people who are literally going to save your life when you go. Like, I, I, it was a st And what was so disappointing was the way it was working. So anyway, I, I happened to flick around, I was watching the TV, and Jeremy Hunt was on Andrew Marr, and he just, just said a load of shit that was clearly spun or inaccurate, or not true, or avoiding the thing. I was just incensed, and I just tweeted something like, this is what it, like, with a clip, this is what it looks like when a man goes on television and lies to the British public. If, <laughs> if I'm wrong, sue me at Jeremy Hunt, right? And you put, I dare you. I did, I put, I dare <laughs> I did. Yeah. If I'm wrong, sue me at Jeremy Hunt, I dare you. And I wouldn't do that now. <laughs> I would, no, I wouldn't do that. It's so reckless. But I was incensed. And um, what astonishes me is that he replied. I mean, his, his people now must be like, mate, what, what are you doing? But he got into like a dog fight with you. Yeah, and it's like, I never, I never expected anyone to, to re respond to it. But, and he replied. But, but he kept replying and you staged a brutal 42 tweet takedown that was just packed with... Data, yeah. logic, and the one thing that he couldn't compete with, humour. Yeah, it was evidence. He asked for evidence. That's the thing. He replied and he, he said... saying, evidence this. You're yeah. like, here you go, here He's, you go, yeah, here he you said, go. He said, I hope you've got some evidence to back up those claims. If you have, show me. I dare you. And I went... Yeah, he double dared you. Yeah, I double dare you. And I went... Because <laughs> that's grown up. All right. Well, I'm like, I'm not going to back down from that. So I spent three or four days speaking to doctors, collecting, like, evidence together. And then I... Um, and then I said to him, come on, let's do this. Let's go on, let's go on a, let's go on and talk this through. But, but not like... Let's take this outside. Yeah, Let's take this to a podcast. Let's take this to, yeah. the t to TV. But actually more so just saying like a podcast or whatever, because, because TV, you've only got a certain amount of time. Mm -hmm. So you can flannel for like 30 seconds go, you know, Boris Johnson used to do it. Well, like, you can run the you know, clock I, down. I don't think your viewers are interested in that. What they really want to talk about is like, no, I'll tell you what yeah. we want to talk about because I just asked you the question. And you're quite right. They run the clock down yeah. to evade 
um, uh, the but question. yeah, he, he wouldn't have it, unfortunately. So well, that never happened. But but in terms of finding, in, in answering your question, I think that made you happy. <laughs> it did. It made me yes. very happy. It really did. Thank you so much, and continued success in that hellish job of yours in the Caribbean. It's awful. It's I'm awful so sorry day. for you. Well, with your massive day. ratings and everything, I'm sure there'd be plenty well, more. You know, after sort of after month four, you're a bit like, I mean, I guess I should swim in the Caribbean Sea again, but it's a bit warm. Oh, all right. So it's hard. <laughs> it is hard. But I do my best. Uh, it's lovely to see you flying so high. And uh, and for those that have missed the current season, it's available on iPlayer, as are all previous seasons as well, I believe. Yes. And if you want to listen to the podcast, you go to wherever you get the podcast. It's Two Pints with Will and Ralph. Yeah. Uh, I've been on. It's extraordinarily rude. <laughs> Way worse language than you get on this show. I've been FYI. very well behaved, have I not? You have. But it's because I've not got Will next to me. If he's a bad influence. Suddenly Some we... of the stuff he asked me, I was like... Wow, I think I've just got curly hair because yeah, my hair's exactly. shocked. Yeah, so yeah. <laughs> Suddenly we're having a sort of really kind of thoughtful intellectual you can, conversation. You can phone Will after this and yeah. go, we had a grown-up yeah. conversation. Yeah. You should try it. We'll be like, oh, I'll tell you what, Kate, that was the time I shit myself. It's like, <laughs> yeah. oh, God, here we go again. Look at your nipples. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. A massive thanks to Ralph for being such a phenomenal guest this week. And don't forget, you can watch him in the new series of Death in Paradise on BBC One and iPlayer. Also, if you are a fan of his podcast with Will Mellow, you can get that. It's called Two Pints with Will and Ralph, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're in the mood for more great chat with other stars of the big screen, small screen and stage, then Tamsin Athway, Alan Cumming, Will Mellor, Hannah Waddingham, Craig Charles, John Thompson, Jason Fleming and many more are sat in our back catalogue. My thanks to you as always for listening in to Maria Nibs and the Yahoo Studios team who produced the show with me. Editing is by Eleanor Humphrey and our music, as always, is by Andy Bell. I'll be back next Friday. Until then, thanks for your company. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.